0: All right, let's, let's, um, let's try this. I, I talked last week about something I think is really, really important, or at least I broached the subject. Yeah. And I, I broached the subject of this thing called denial. And we began looking at the power of denial. Tonight, or this afternoon, I want to take the, the antonym of denial and maybe conceptually the the antidote of denial this thing called acceptance and I want to again just broach the subject of this fascinating subject the opposite of denial and that is acceptance and to kind of jump into this and kind of set the tone I want to take just a minute and I want to read a reading from a wonderful teacher named Tara Brock anybody ever heard of Tara Brock a wonderful Buddhist meditation teacher. she's someone Lindsley has introduced me to. She's a phenomenal woman. I knew of her because she's an associate of Jack Cornfields, who's a hero of mine. But this is a personal story, and so I'll just read it in her voice. It was the end of a day-long meditation workshop. A woman named Pam, in her late 60s, drew me aside. Her husband Jerry was near death after three years of suffering from lymphoma. She looked at me and said, I wanted so much to save him. I've looked into Ayurvedic medicine, acupuncture, Chinese herbs, every alternative treatment I could find. I have tracked every test result. We were gonna beat this thing. And then she sat back wearily in her chair, shoulders slumped, and she said, now my life consists of keeping in touch with everyone, giving updates, coordinating hospice care. If he's not napping, I try to make him comfortable. I read to him. I just do something. I responded to her gently. It sounds like you've been trying really hard to take good care of Jerry. It's been very busy for you. At these words, she gave me a smile of recognition. Hmm, she said, busy. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? She paused a moment and then said, as far back as I can remember, I've always been very busy. But now, well, I just can't sit back. I just can't let him go without a fight. She was silent for a few moments and then she looked at me anxiously. He could die any day now, Tara. Isn't there some Buddhist practice or ritual or something that I should learn? Is there something I should be reading? How do I help him with this, with with dying? Pam, I said, you've already done so much, but the time for all that kind of activity, I think you know, is over. It's over now. At this point, you don't have to make anything happen. You don't need to do anything. I waited a moment and then added, just be with him. Let him know your love through the fullness of your presence. At this difficult time in their lives, I was calling on a simple teaching that is central to my work with my meditation students and therapy clients. It's through realizing loving presence as our very essence, through being that presence, that we discover true freedom. You see, in the face of inevitable loss, this timeless presence brings healing and peace to our own hearts and to the hearts of others. When it gets really hard, I suggested Try to pause and recognize what you're feeling. Tap into the fear, the anger, the grief, and then inwardly whisper the phrase, I consent. I'd recently heard this phrase from Father Thomas Keating, and I thought that as a Catholic person, Pam might find it particularly valuable and comforting. Saying, as Keating said, I consent or as I more frequently teach people simply saying yes it relaxes our armoring against the present moment and allows us to meet life's challenges with a more open heart Pam was nodding but she had an intent worried look I want to do this Tara but when I'm most upset when he's most hurting my mind speeds up I start Talking to myself. I start talking to him. How do you remember to pause in moments like that? I told her you probably will forget you don't have to do this perfectly It's totally natural All you can do really is have the intention to pause and whether you do or not at least the intention was there the intention to feel what's going on and let be At this release, Pam's face softened with understanding. She whispered, I can do that. I can intend. With all my heart, I can intend to be there for him. A month after our conversation, she called to tell me what had happened after the workshop. She acknowledged that even in those final weeks of her husband's life, she had struggled with the urge to be busy, to find ways to feel useful. She shared that one afternoon, Jerry began talking. She said he didn't talk much in those last days, but he began talking about having only a short time left. He began talking with a very sweet peace about not being afraid of death. She said as he was talking, I bent over, gave him a kiss, interrupted him and said quickly, oh dear, today's been a good day. You seem to have more energy. Can I make you some herbal tea? He fell silent and the quietness, she said, shook her. It became so clear to me in those moments that anything other than listening to what was really going on, anything other than being fully present, actually separated us. I avoided reality. I avoided acceptance by suggesting a kind cup of tea. And yet I realized that my attempt to steer away from the truth took me away from him and that was heartbreaking. Before she ended the call, Pam shared with me what she considered to be the gift of her last few days with Jerry, the answer really to her prayers. Finally, as I paused, as I lived into this intent to simply be with him, to accept that this was happening, she said, ultimately in the silence I could see past a sense of him and a sense of me. It became clear that we were a field of loving. We became more than Jerry and Pam. We became total openness, warmth, light. He's gone, but that field of loving is always with me. My heart knows that I came home, that I truly came home to love. If John were delivering the sermon today, he certainly could deliver this one because through the years, all of us but i I suppose pastors and clinicians and medical folk i can say for me i have had what i would call the privilege of coming alongside hundreds if not thousands of people who have faced um, difficulties challenges uh, terminal illness uh, the loss of a child uh, personal failure if you would call it that There's conjecture there, I'm sure. Incarceration, I remember a few years ago, walking alongside a friend who had made some tragic mistakes, and it was so exceptional to who he was. The devastation for him, his family, the incarceration that ensued. Uh, Financial devastation, I've come alongside hundreds of people who've dealt with these kinds of things. Chronic pain, this unremitting pain that and then opioid addiction, I've just come alongside all kinds of pain. I have, I've had a front row, up-close seat from which to observe not only this type of suffering in people, but beyond the suffering, the effects that that kind of suffering has on the human soul and the human psyche. I've watched more than a few people facing that kind of unfortunate, unpleasant unwanted, and all those words are too slight for the moment that Shelley was talking about a while ago, those moments when you just, you just don't know. And I've watched more than a few people through the years, and you have too, I've watched more than a few literally collapse under the load. The pain becomes more than they believe they could bear, and I've watched people implode I've watched people just escape it all, some literally by ending their lives, others more indirectly in their lives by psychologically giving up and giving in and just checking out. And that kind of protracted, prolonged, tortured, time-release form of suicide may be the saddest of all when you just watch a friend, Matt, just give up. We all know that there are passive ways to take one's life as well as there are active ways. And the reality is the temptation to give up on this life in those moments is not a badge of shame. I mean, even a hero, a Christian hero like St. Paul felt this. I mean, we sterilize and sanitize his words to the point they're really almost meaningless at times. But in 2 Corinthians 5, he said, I want you to know that Times grew so hard, and if you want to know the difficulty, read 2 Corinthians 4. It was really hard on this guy. We don't know the specifics, but in 2 Corinthians 1, he said, literally, things got so bad for me that I despaired of life. And when you you look at that phrase, despaired of life, the knee jerk is to think that it means I was afraid I was going to die. It's bigger than that. He said, things got bad, and I was afraid I was going to die, and then things got worse, and I was afraid that I wouldn't. I despaired of life i was more afraid of staying than i was going and 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 he went on in the fifth chapter and again this is the sterilized part that we kind of king james eyes with shakespearean language but he said i literally longed to be absent from my body because i knew to be absent from the body was to be present with the lord he said i earnestly desired that this house would dissolve and, and he said i'm not sadistic it's not that i desire to go through the death process but he said I earnestly desire that this house would dissolve because I feel like I have a house not made with hands that's a whole lot more fit for me than this one and really in those moments when Paul's talking about that level of despair that level of depression that literally caused him to feign for the other side whatever that is and to to get through biological cessation and just move on the only difference between I suppose Paul and someone who ultimately takes their life is for whatever reason, by whatever, by whatever source of strength, he was able to realize that the prerogative of his life wasn't in his hands. He had a theology that said for me to live is Christ, but to die would be gain. But if I could put my two sins in, I kind of wanted to go. So this, this thing that some of us have felt, you know, where you just get to the end and you just... It's not so much you want to die as much as you just don't want to keep on living. It's real. And it's a a really great sadness when someone you love faces that kind of circumstance, that kind of situation, for they begin to despair of life. And it's even more sad when you watch those people give in. So the natural thing is, just like Pam in the story, when our loved ones or our friends are facing those kinds of moments, we, of course want to help them. We want to lift whatever of their load we can. We want to provide a shoulder and a hand. We essentially want to be whatever they need. And yet we know when someone is facing these types of life-challenging scenarios, no matter how much you want to help them, you can't end up making decisions for them. You can't choose life for them. You can't do their work. You can't tell them how they're supposed to feel about this. You, you, you don't know the gravity of the pull of despair on their heart. And you, you can't possibly project yourself into that situation as much as you want to. I remember watching, a, a, and this just will take the breath away of all of all of us, I'm sure, especially those with little children right now. I remember watching a couple of friends of mine years ago lose their four-year-old, um, it was some type of leukemia, and my buddy was 6'5", 280 pounds, a, a former NFL football player, and I remember when the word came, I remember watching him stagger almost like a punch drunk boxer physically like something had forced him he staggered and he hit the wall and he just slid a mountain of a man down that wall and i remember thinking to myself there is three million tons of grief on him and everything i could do in this moment would not lift two ounces and all you can do rachel is just be there this is why jesus taught and i think he was so wise when he said that that we really have to carry our own crosses. We really have to carry our own burdens in life. Crosses, Jesus said, you know, the the tough stuff that we all have to deal with. They're as distinctive for each of us as fingerprints and snowflakes. Jesus said, take up your cross. Don't take up mine. Don't take up your brother's. Don't take up your mother's. Take up yours. The point is, We can and we must come alongside others, but we cannot take their place. We can help other people with their burdens, but in the end, we can only bear our own and they theirs. So one of the struggles that we all have, either both as clinicians and people who simply love, is we have to be careful that we don't get caught in the gravitational field of another person's suffering. I mean, to to really, do well for them you know i look back at barbara a clinician here a therapist and i think you know sitting with people in agony is a part of what i do but i've always wondered there has to be so much self-work in the life of a clinician to keep from getting caught those of you who have loved ones who suffer with unremitting depression or addiction problems you know what i mean when i say you got to be really careful not to get caught in that gravitational pull because there is a gravitational pull around them, and it's always a great challenge because we're called to comfort others, but we have to remember, as much as we're called to comfort them, we can't cure them. We just can't. We talk about uh, in the recovery world, the Cs of I didn't cause it, I can't control it, I can't cure it. I've always added one somewhere in there. I I didn't cause it, I can't control it, I can't change it, I can't cure it, but there are two other Cs, aren't there, Furlane? The other sees are, I can care, and I can comfort. I can't cure, I can't change, I can't control, I didn't cause, but I can care. And so we're always trying to find, as people who love one another, this line where we stand dignifying the other at the respectful boundary between them and ourselves, loving them without yielding to the immature extremes of either leaving them or living for them. I'm always reminded of... Parker Palmer's wonderful story, a devastating story, how at midlife he fell into a terrible depression. And he said for the first couple of months, friend after friend after friend came to him as he lay there in that fetal position, this just horrible depression sitting on him. And he said after a couple of months, all the friends trickled away, especially all the ones that came with words of advice and From pharmacology to spirituality, everybody had an answer. He said he had one friend who made it all the way through, Jeff. Twelve months, the guy made it all the way through. Came three times a week, and in one year, three times a week, he never said a word. It's called the ministry of presence. Palmer said the most he would ever do was sometimes he would take my shoes off, and he would wash my feet, massage my feet, but never a word. I mean, sometimes you have to wonder, do we rush into those moments. Are, are we actually there for our friend to relieve their grief, or are we there with our friend to relieve the burden that they've become to us? Because they're kind of messing up the constellation of our own life being depressed, aren't they? But to be with that friend and say, you're not messing up anything in my life, you're the one hurting. And Jocelyn, just to be there, wow. Loving people without leaving them or trying to live for them. For our own journey with these types of difficult circumstances, the crosses that we personally bear, for per our own attempts to find a way to not only bear them, but even more than bear them, to kind of lean into them. And that sounds kind of odd, talking about difficulties and crosses, but to lean into a cross, to lean into the vicissitudes, and to find a way not only to bear them, but to redeem them in some in some soul-making process. As I think about my own crosses, I think about my own things that I have to deal with, I come back to another set of letters and it also comes from the recovery world. The three A's. The A's of awareness. It's a nice little rubric for dealing with your own stuff and looking at your own journey. Awareness, acceptance, and action, awareness, aware, I accept and I act. And I think about the serenity prayer, God grant me the serenity, say it with me, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. This is where we live life. This is where the rubber actually meets the road We all face difficult circumstances. No one is exempt. Life is never burden-free. I think one of the great challenges for most of us is somewhere back along the way, we had a halcyon moment where all the ducks lined up, and we fell prey to believing that's the way it's always supposed to be. Right? Remember that? One time in your life, all the ducks lined up. And somehow your palate got set and you think to yourself, Steve, that's the way it's always going to be. And you run around like the fool the rest of your life trying to recapture probably what was an illusion then and an illusion now. My granddad used to tell me, he said, you know what, Stan, life's always being thankful for one thing in spite of another. And the reality is good and bad run on parallel tracks and they generally get there just about the same time. And Jesus said, the wheat and the tares grow together. And boy, our tendency is to try to get all the tares out of our life and just have the wheat. But he said, the doggone this thing is the wheat and the tares, their root structures get so entangled that if you start messing with one, you start troubling the other. So then there's this wonderful, wonderfully wise phrase of Paul where Paul said, you know, he didn't just say all things work for good. He said all things work work say the next word with me all things work together see i don't i don't like when the bad stuff works with the good stuff i like all my good stuff over here i like my bad stuff over here i'm I, that's i know there's a medication for that but i like school lunch trays i don't like my corn juice over on my potatoes always have fine dining for me is a divided tray where none of the gravy gets on the uh, on the applesauce people say well it all goes to the same spot. Yes, but you don't have taste buds in your stomach. That's gross. And I'm I'm just kind of a one thing at a time kind of person. I compartmentalize. Paul said you just can't do life that way. He said all things work together. My grandmother used to say, you know, we love the sugar, but it's a cake isn't all sugar. There's some bacon powder and raw eggs and somehow you take the sweet stuff and the bitter stuff and you mix it together and you expose it to heat for an extended period of time and this cake comes out a mixture of good things and bad things jesus said it these things get intertwined and i remember alan and marilyn bergman great songwriters, windmills of my mind, windmills of our mind, the way we were, how do you keep the music playing, and one of my favorites that that old Jewish couple wrote was Where Do You Start? Where Do You Start? One of the greatest breakup songs of all time. I'm kind of a masochist that way. I like that kind of, uh, listen to the sad songs, but Bear Manilow wasn't anybody's fool, I don't care what you say. There's good stuff in there, Weekend in New England and looks like we made it. But anyway, I I digress. Where do you start? How do you separate the present from the past? How do you deal? How do you deal with all the things you thought would last that didn't last? Look around, which books are yours? And Which tapes and dreams belong to you and which are mine? Our lives are tangled like the branches of a vine that intertwine with bits of memory scattered here and there. I look around and don't know where to start. Good and bad run on parallel tracks and they generally get there about the same time. And Brother Harvick, Steve used to say, if you hadn't had these kind of times, hang on, your time's coming. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 said, I just, for whatever comfort it is, whatever you're going through, just know this, Paul said, there's, there's really nothing that's happening to you that isn't common. It may be hurtful, but it's not uncommon. And that isn't that isn't to gloss over. It's not to trivialize. It's not to diminish this hurt that you feel others have felt it too others have made it through per the 3 a's difficult circumstances like the one i'm talking the ones i'm talking about make the first step of awareness pretty simple some things you just can't avoid they are tough enough and they are blatant enough that you can't help but be aware of them you wish you could but as much as you might want to deny them you can't they make themselves virtually impossible to deny or be aware of unaware of and and the interesting thing about really tough stuff we are taught naturally by life anytime we feel pain to seek the resolve of pain anytime we encounter discomfort we are taught to relieve it and so our normal response to any kind of discomfort is to react immediately And in a lot of situations that's exactly what we should do especially those of a physical kind if you're too cold get warm if you twist your ankle get off of it if you touch a hot stove pull your hand away but there are other types of circumstances not quite as straightforward as the physical there are moments when awareness of pain leads to an immediate action of course that's what we do we're not sadistic we're not sadomasochistic we don't want to hurt ourselves so awareness of pain and we immediately respond to remedy the situation and relieve that pain but the actions don't work and we respond again and the actions don't work and we respond again and the actions don't work and again in the course of sacred literature and sacred lore there's all kinds of stories i mean this is this is Jesus in Gethsemane. Please, please, please. And talk about taking your own journey. There were thousands, and then there were 70, and then there was 12, and then there was 11, and then there was three, and then he took those three out, and the Bible said he set them down at a little place, and he went a little further, because you always have to go a little further, even those closest to you. There is a stretch in your journey they can't go. There's that last little trail where he had to set them down and say, I guess this one's mine. And the Bible says he went a little further and fell on his face. It's interesting. He went a little further, fell on his face, being in agony, just. And the three went with him only so far. And he began to pray, please, not this. Uh, Compounding the agony was when he came back, he found them asleep that hurts and he woke them up and he went back and he prayed a little while longer I mean awareness please no. I think about Paul we talked about this a few weeks ago Paul had this thing he called the thorn in the flesh and he said concerning this thorn he doesn't tell us what it is I'm afraid if heroes of ours like Paul told us what the thorn was then only the folk with that particular thing would think they could identify but you know, pain is pain, and Paul was very generous when he said, just, just let me don't impose the specifics on you, whether it was diabetes or relational difficulties or whatever it was, he said, that's not important. Important is what this thing did to me. He said, I had this thorn, and he said, I did what you always do when you become aware of pain. He said, I begged, but he said, I literally begged God incessantly for this thing to be removed from me, and he said it 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 didn't budge awareness and and you you jump straight to action and a lot of time awareness and you jump straight to action it works but paul said i just continued incessantly to pray about this thing and it wouldn't budge awareness doesn't always lead immediately to action and Even when it does, action doesn't always work. Awareness is an important step, and it includes taking the time sometimes to back up. I mean, to to look at this grain of the universe that you're beating your head against. As C.S. Lewis said, certainly the scripture says to knock on the door, but it doesn't say you've got to bloody your knuckles. And at some point with those bloody knuckles, Stephen, you've got to step back and say something's... Am I missing something here? I'm used to having the religious abracadabra. I'm I'm used to having, you know, that spell that I can cast in Jesus' name that causes mountains to move and waters to recede and circumstances to change. And then all of a sudden, you're Jesus himself. And the grain of the universe is not budging. And you're Paul, and the thorn is unremitting And, and you have to back up, and you've got to say, okay, awareness is diagnosis, acceptance is prognosis, action is prescription and treatment plan, and and it just might be that I'm jumping to a prescription and a treatment plan based on a wrong prognosis, it's based on a wrong diagnostic, and there's time that you have to find that place that Jesus came to in Gethsemane, where he's saying three hours worth of please until he finally whispers, nevertheless... And there's this shift it's called acceptance where you back up and you realize I may have misdiagnosed this thing there is something here that I just might be missing that frenetic action and awareness hell isn't going to solve you're you're Paul and 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 you're literally saying you got to get this thing out of my side because it's ruining my life and impeding and impairing my ministry and Paul said by the time by the time I finally could hear, God was saying to me, my grace is sufficient, which is a really euphemistic, nice way of saying, no, the thorn's not budging here. And, and then this whole diagnosis for you know that you know, you know, we just, golly, I grew up knowing that if you really knew Scripture and sang the songs right and paid your tithe, that you could pretty much, whenever life hits you, figure out within about five minutes what part was the devil and what part was life and what part was God. Geez, the longer I live, the more I realize the admixture of good. I, I don't even, the binary of what's good and bad, what's making me and what's breaking me, who the heck knows? I think by the time Job was done, you know, everybody has a theology on the story of Job. There was this devil involved and there was life involved and natural disasters, and then God was somewhere up there. And I think if you would have asked Job in the end, okay, Job, tell me, was that God, Satan, or life? I think Job would have said, absolutely. And I don't know how to untangle it. I don't know what. Parts brain chemistry. I, I don't even, I'm not even worried too much about, you know, ass, assessing personal culpability and corporate complicity. I just know I'm here. Paul said there was this thorn and I thought it was going to ruin me. And by the time I heard the rediagnosis, I was able to take my hands from the position of extricating it to embracing it. And Paul said "It's the same thing, it just occurred to me that this thorn is not an IV just to pump pain for the sake of pain and bitterness into my life. Paul said this thorn literally became a funnel that opened me to a dimension of grace I would have never known, Linda, never known. He literally reflected back and said, you know, honestly think now and looking back, the thorn was for your sake. Because when I was greatly afflicted, I ended up in my sorrow being greatly comforted. And my entire life in ministry has been a ministry of comfort. All I've been is a steward of my pain as I have comforted others with the comfort wherewith God has comforted me. Isn't that something? I thought it was going to ruin me. And in the end, the very thing that I didn't want on my resume is the very thing that actually, the thing that I resisted, the thing I kicked against. It's just like Jacob. All night long at the creek, he wrestles with someone that he thinks is an emissary from his brother Esau come to kill him. And he's fighting and pulling hair and biting and scratching and clawing and hitting. And somewhere about daybreak, the light hits that enemy just right. And Jacob realizes that he's been fighting all night long with the very God who came to save him and he goes from kicking to rapping and now instead of let me go jacob says i'm not going to let you go to you bless me and the funniest thing is that angelic presence that divine presence god whatever it was it was supernal now all of a sudden after fighting with him all night long jacob says oh wraps it up and says, I'm not going to let you go. And now all of a sudden that presence says, let me go. Isn't that something? But you know, it's a fixed fight. God could have gotten loose if God wanted to. But at this point, God says, let me go. And Jacob says, no. And God in that angelic presence does something really interesting. He caresses Jacob's face and says, you're a changed man. The the wrestling didn't do it. The wrestling just manifested, you're a changed man. You won't even be called Jacob the deceiver anymore. You're going to be called Israel. And as he caressed him and Jacob leaned into this change that had come through so much pain and so much personal failure, as he leans into that new name and presses his face into that divine caress with the other hand, that angelic presence hits him on the hip and he screams as he's dislocated, caresses and dislocations in the same chapter of life. Isn't that something, how that works? Caresses and dislocations, just like Paul. Paul's thorn chapter is his third heaven chapter. He said, I was coming down the staircase from the third heaven, and there was given me a thorn in the side. I, thorns in third heavens, caresses and dislocations. And I've always thought it's really beautiful as Jacob came dragging that, bum leg back across Jabok. No, it's not Jacob. It's Israel. And the kids run out and they say, dad, and his hair's messed up and his eye is black and his lips bloodied. And they're like, what happened to you? And he drags the leg and he says, I just got blessed. (laughs) And an angel punches another angel and says, boy, it doesn't look like a blessed man I ever saw. And God whispers, no, they normally don't. They usually, they usually walk with, bit of a hitch in their giddy-up, so every time the barometric pressure gets a little high, it's a gift of grace to remind them about the caress and the change. Acceptance. At some point, attempts at denial fail and we yield to awareness. And at some point, awareness hell wears us out and we just don't want to keep re-articulating in our therapy group, you know, the diagnosis. But acceptance, and we'll pick up here next week, acceptance really is where the tough stuff happens for us. Acceptance. Do you know the last two years I've been trying to write a book that we have formulated over the last ten years here? It's a book the publishers and agents and everybody's wanting me to write about shame. You know my whole deal that we've kind of formulated here together. It's not sin and separation. It's shame and estrangement. Two years, I've had publishers, agents, everybody waiting on me to get this dead gum book written. And I have you Glenn, I've used every excuse not to write it. Church going through a lot. Kids are going through a lot. A lot to do. Can't get to it. Three weeks ago, I realized why I couldn't write it, Steve. I hadn't accepted. Theoretically, I understood how tenacious and devastating shame is, but I had not accepted some things about shame. And I wanted to write a book for people who deal with shame, and I wanted to include all y'all's stories in it who've dealt with shame. But I couldn't write it, because I was ashamed to write a book about shame. I couldn't write it because the only way the story makes sense is if I tell my story. And my story is not a story I want to tell. So I'm not going to bleed all over y'all, but I'm just telling you, in all of our lives, I sat down the other day and I looked, and Steve, as I began to tell my story, the stuff that I have so much shame about. Oh God, that, mm. I began to get a release, and the pen began to flow, and the book will be written now. But I had to come to a place of acceptance. It's, it's not the perfect story, but I tell you what it is, it's mine, and it may be crappy, but it's mine, and it's all I got. And yours is all you've got. And if you can't get out of it, might as well get into it. And so we've got to get out of awareness hell. And we don't need to addictively jump to our own prescription and action. There's a place. There is a Gethsemane in all of our life. There is a wrestling match beside the River Jabbok in all of our life where we've got to come face to face with ourselves, And God's got to look at us and say, your name's been Jacob, but it's Israel now. And you're going to walk differently. Oh, great. I'm going to run faster. No, God said you're actually going to drag. (laughs) But it's going to be different. And it's going to be good. And it's going to be a blessed walk. And that, brothers and sisters, is this thing called acceptance. Isn't that lovely? But it's not easy. But it sure is good. Can you say amen? amen? Let's still our hearts and let's just pray for a moment here meditatively and just... Think about what all this means for us. We all have stories. We all have hard stuff that we would rather make a cup of herbal tea instead of deal with. Sweet Christ, may we hear you say, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are embarrassed, blessed are those who are humiliated, blessed are those who have a tough time with acceptance. Grace us now, good God, with strength and courage to not bear anybody else's, but to embrace our own and to realize that the great alchemist in all of us, the divine presence of God in all of us, oh, what an alchemist it is. It can put all of it together and get the best tasting cake Out of the heated oven of life that we could possibly imagine thank you for transforming our raw eggs and bitter bacon powder into the sweet cake of a good together life we pray all of this thing all of these things trusting 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 tasting even that this is true now may we have courage move into acceptance even this week we pray this in christ's name and god's people said now go and be good to one another god bless you i gotta go write a book